You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're turning again to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, and this evening we're reading in chapter 2, and from verse 18 through to the end of the chapter in verse 25. If you're using one of the church Bibles, then in most cases the reading is on page 1,218. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, and beginning to read in verse 18. He's addressing household slaves here. There's more than one word for slave used in the New Testament, and he's speaking about household slaves here. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh Maybe I can just retranslate that uh, and give you a little explanation. Uh, Peter uses a word that means honor or respect uh, in this chapter. He uses another word that means fear. And it's that word fear that he's using here. And since he usually uses that word fear, not with respect to our attitude to men and women, but with our attitude to God, I personally think this has been poorly translated. So, let me begin again, uh, since I won't make any further comment on this, and, and retranslate this. Slaves, he says, submit yourselves to your masters with all fear, that is, reverence for God, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit? And he used the word grace here. How is it to your grace? If you receive a beating from doing wrong, and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, You'll, those of you who know the Old Testament well, just see echoes of Isaiah chapter 53, 
woven into what Peter is saying. And then he says, you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the big lessons in First Peter is that you can live a gospel style of life anywhere and in any circumstances. You can live a full, obedient, God-honoring Christian life under the most difficult of circumstances as well as under the most pleasant of circumstances. And Peter has come to a section in his letter in which he's encouraging Christians living in a a pre-Christian world, and we've been learning lessons about living as Christians in a post-Christian world from him. He's come to deal with some of the most day-to-day but also sensitive areas of what it means to be a Christian. How do you live the Christian life? Is it even possible to live the Christian life when the state is hostile to the laws and purposes of God. And he's spoken to us already about how the Christian does that for God's glory. Uh, he, he's given hints to these Christians who are going to experience persecution in the Roman Empire that have been such a help to Christians in many parts of the world where they've experienced privation politically, distress physically, and opposition from the state. And he's teaching Christians how to live a full-orbed Christian life when the state is anti-Christian. It's a very sensitive area. But now he moves on to two areas that I personally judge are even more sensitive for most of us. Is it possible to live the Christian life if you're a slave? And then, uh, perhaps even more sensitive for us, how do you live the Christian life in a difficult marriage situation? So, he really is touching on uh, situations and circumstances that many Christians find difficult to cope with. And and this evening, we understand slavery, interestingly, is in the news again in the last few years, the sheer amount of slavery that there is in the world of all different kinds, often headline news. So, if you're in that situation, how do you live the Christian life? Unless we think this or apply this simply as something that affects people out there in difficult situations and say there is no parallel here in our own lives, of course, one of the things that was true of a slave was he had been sold, lock, stock, and barrel, body and soul, to somebody else. Somebody owned his or her old life. And to a certain extent, to a limited extent, for most of us, unless we work for ourselves, we have in a sense sold ourselves for 35 hours of the week so that that time, of course, we're in a different situation. Uh, We can thumb our nose at somebody and say, I've had it, I'm out of here, I'd rather not have any income than work for you. We, We have that freedom. But so long as we have sold 
hours of our life to an employer, whether that employer be the state, whether it be a family business, whether it be a, 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 a multinational corporation, to a certain extent, those hours are no longer ours. Certainly, as Christians, that would be true, wouldn't it? We have exchanged these hours of our talents, of our ability, of our attention to someone else, and we no longer own these hours. These hours are given over in service to others. And of course, uh, most of us at some time or another in our lives therefore find ourselves in a situation not wholly dissimilar from what Peter describes here. Some of us have bosses who are considerate and helpful and want to see us do our best. And others of us have bosses who are unreasonable, who are proud, who are self-seeking, and who are harsh. And of course, it's particularly that latter situation that Peter is addressing here. And it has, in that sense, a very special relevance for some of us as we seek to live our Christian life in circumstances where we have sold ours and sold our talents to someone else's possession. And Peter is teaching us the secret in this situation as in every other situation is this. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We no longer belong to this world. Our lives are no longer confined to this world. And although we belong to another world while we live in this world, living by the principles of that other world, living for the Lord of that other world, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's actually extraordinarily possible for us to live as Christ's free men and women, even if we have been sold into slavery. And just like working conditions today, working conditions for slaves in the first century varied enormously. Somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. The Roman Empire ran on slavery. Slaves were the civil servants. By and large, slaves were the educators. Slaves ran the household. The whole Roman Empire depended on slavery. And some of those people were able to buy their own freedom. Some of them had positions of enormous influence. Some of them had masters who treated them very well. And others, perhaps particularly in the, in the rural areas, were treated harshly and had, had difficult masters. And Peter understands all this. This was not something hidden away from Peter. Peter, after all, is writing from Babylon, that is code language for Rome. He was in the epicenter of the slave world. He probably couldn't walk out into the streets without encountering the slave market and surrounded by people who were slaves. And as we see from several letters in 
the New Testament, it's fairly clear that numbers of these slaves had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, one of these had been a runaway slave who had encountered Paul and through Paul's ministry had been converted. And you remember what Paul did. He sent him back to his master as a brother in order to live the Christian life in the very atmosphere that he had sought to escape. So how are we to do this? How are how these Christians to live as Christian slaves in an environment that was hostile to the gospel? And perhaps by way of application, what are the principles that should govern my life if I find myself uh, in a working situation where my time belongs to the company or to the owner or even for that matter to the state? And I find myself in situations where, as Peter says here, those who are over me are harsh and unreasonable and difficult masters who even threaten me. And of course, as Christians, uh, isn't that all the more likely to be true? In one of the great paradoxes of some working situations, that the person who gets most hassle is actually the conscientious Christian worker, and the reason they get hassle is because they are so conscientious in what they do. And there are all kinds of situations, therefore. But in small ways, yes, diluted ways, you can always walk away. Whereas these men and women could never walk away. You can always speak back where for these men and women, speaking back might mean lashes on your back or even death because you are simply another piece of property owned by the person in whose house or in whose fields you work. So how, how does the gospel help us to negotiate this situation? And Peter seems to me to give us two fundamental principles. The first is this, that there is a submissiveness that is possible for the Christian because of the gospel of salvation. There is a submissiveness that is possible for the Christian because of the gospel of salvation. It's very noticeable in what Peter says when he deals with these three difficult areas of life, Christian and the state, Christian as a slave, Christian and a difficult marriage. The very first word he uses in each instance is submit. That's very countercultural today, isn't it? And of course, non-Christians read passages like this and say, what Peter should have said to these slaves is, you've got to get out of there. You've got to revolt. Remember watching, I think it was Question Time, uh, the Dimbleby program on BBC one night, a very uh, opinionated, rather well-known young leftist journalist was going on and on and on about what should be happening in another country. And somebody else in the panel just turned to him at the end of this harangue about what they should be doing and said, may I ask you how long you lived there? You see, people had tried that method in Rome. 
You know, if you're, if you're an idealist coming to this and saying, what these people should do is revolt, they, they, had, they had tried that method. And their bones were rotting somewhere in the Roman Empire. It would have been as foolish and ignorant to have said that to these Christian slaves who were in a tiny minority in the Roman Empire as it would have been to say to people in Maoist China or in Stalinist Russia or in Hitler Germany. It's obvious what you should do. You should revolt and you should be free. So, there's no foolish idealism. There's no unreality about what Peter is saying here because Peter's gospel has taught him that the Christian response is not a revolution that changes the structures of society because he understands that with all the changes in the structure of society, nothing has managed to change the sinful people who have governed the structures in society. But he wants to teach these Christians not a revolution against the structures, but a style of life that will radically subvert the structures so that the simplest, poorest, weakest, loneliest Christian can live a different kind of lifestyle in the most oppressive environment. In other words, he's dealing with the situation as, as it really is. Now, how do you do that? Ah, he says only the Christian can do that. That's interesting, isn't it? Only the Christian has the key to this situation because only the Christian submits to a higher lordship than the one who owns him. And that's what he says, isn't it? Look at what he says. He says, now, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And this is why I think the words, with all respect, need to be retranslated in all fear. Because he's not speaking here about the master. The big thing is not necessarily respect for the master. In many instances, the master will be altogether, altogether unworthy of respect. The big thing is that you see beyond the master and you live, as he goes on to say, before the face of God, in the presence of God. And you live your life out in a submissiveness to the Lord that enables you to cope with what it means that for the present time you may have to be submissive because you have no option to the harshest master you could ever imagine. Now, how does that, how does that subvert the situation? One, it subverts the situation because it gives you the motivation to do your service in the best possible way with the greatest possible energy. Because at the end of the day, you're not doing it for the man or for the woman. You're doing it for the Lord. And the reason it's so subversive, 
The reason, in a sense, the slave can laugh up his sleeve when he goes to bed at night is that poor, blind, harsh, ignorant master thinks I'm producing this marvelous service because I'm frightened of him. And at the moment, he is so blind that he doesn't see that the quality of my service has got nothing to do with him. And it's got everything to do with the master whom I love and whom I really serve. You see, this is the, this is the genius of the gospel. In a way, this is another way of saying what, what John Ferguson, my brother John Ferguson, in Christ, my brother John Ferguson, was saying this morning, how do you, how do you live the Christian life? You live the Christian life in a, in a constant communion with the Lord, don't you? As he, was, as he was saying so helpfully, you know, that doesn't mean that when, you know, when you're on the task and people are saying, well, why aren't you doing it? And so oh, I'm living my life in communion with the Lord. No, no, as he put it so beautifully, you're saying to the Lord Jesus, you know, this is, this is what we're going to do today, isn't it? This is what the harsh master has insisted that I do, but you'll be with me, won't you? And I'm going to do this in, in your presence. And I'm going to do this for your glory. And that means that I am doing it in a submissive way, but any submissiveness there seems to be with respect to the master is really my submissiveness to you, Lord. And the silly man doesn't get it. He thinks he's so strong. He thinks he's so powerful. He thinks he's intimidated me. But he's actually done the very reverse. I don't feel an ounce of his intimidation because I was never serving him in the first place. I was always serving you, my Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says, this is the gracious thing. He says, look, he says, uh, if you get a cuff in the ear because you're, you're doing the wrong thing and, and you put up with it, that, that's, no, that's no credit to you. What he means is you, you can't turn around to the Lord Jesus when you've got the beating because you did bad work and say, Lord Jesus, uh, this is because of you. Because I think the Lord Jesus will say, no, I think it's because of you. It's because of your sin. But you see, you, you serve the Lord Jesus you do better work than you would ever do otherwise for the master. And then the master, who is so irritated actually by the, the freedom and the quality of your service. Isn't this interesting? It's, and it's, my friend, it's almost inevitable for some of us. For some people, because we do better work, because we belong to the Lord Jesus, they will be glad and they will be appreciative. They may even promote us, but there will some who will be even more angry, more irritated, because they know that their goal has been to intimidate us and frighten us and to find reasons why, in this instance, they might beat us. And instead, we have been beyond reproach. We've done the very best work we could. There has, been a, there has been a willingness 
in us, and it irritates them even more, and so they punish us. As you know, I've hardly ever done an honest day's work in my life, as uh, I'm sure some of you are probably sitting there thinking, but, but I've heard of, of, of many people who just because of the quality of the work they do suffer more than they would if they were lazy and indifferent. Ah, but he's saying, you know, that's not the reward you're ultimately looking for. The reward the person who fears God is ultimately looking for is, as we've seen whenever Peter has mentioned the fear of God, the knowledge that his face is turned towards me that that benediction that Aaron and the priests were to command is a benediction that's being commanded on me. The Lord is lifting up the light of His countenance upon me, and He's giving me His shalom. Remember, uh, those of you who have read poetry from the past, I don't know what they teach in poetry and uh, in secondary school any longer or in university. But some of you remember George Herbert's poem called The Elixir. Um, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. A man that looks on glass, on it may stay his eye, or if he pleaseth through it pass, and then the heaven espy. All may of thee partake. Nothing can be so mean which with this tincture for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. Who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold, for that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. And that's it, isn't it? It's those words, and Peter reflects them by the way in which he speaks about the face of God, living before the face of God in the presence of God, with respect for God, in the fear of God. It's that I'm doing it for His sake. And that transforms everything. I remember reading, I think when I was a teenager, about this uh, in the old days. Actually, it's still true. It's coming back in the airports, isn't it? You can get your shoes shined in the airports. Again, it's one of the great ideas imported from the United States where in every airport someone will shine your shoes. I remember reading this story about a young boy who was a, a, sh a shoe shiner, and one of his customers said, there's an amazing job. He says, now what... what what drives you, a young boy, to polish shoes like this? And he said, uh, sir, he said, I polish them so that if they belonged to the Lord Jesus, he would be able to see his reflection in them. Now, that's why I say, on the one hand, it's not going to be easy necessarily, and Peter recognizes that. You may have a harsh master, 
But the key is simple, that we do all things for his glory. In that sense, we bypass whether the master is good, which is very encouraging, or whether the master is bad, which can be so discouraging. But you see, the thing the bad master can't do is actually to stop us doing everything for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And that leads Peter to the second principle. If the first principle is that there is a, there's a submissiveness produced in our lives by the power of the gospel, he says in the second place there is, there is a suffering involved in the Christian life that is part of our common vocation. Notice how he goes on to this in verse 21. He's speaking about suffering for doing good. He says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, here's the big point, and he's actually prepared us for it in what he taught us in chapter 1. Suffering is not an additional extra to being a Christian. Suffering is not uh, an elective that we take in the Christian life. Suffering belongs to the very essence of the Christian life to which we have been called. Now, now why is that? Because we've been called to Jesus Christ. Because we've been called to the Jesus Christ whom he's going to describe in the verses that follow, drawing on the great suffering servant passage. And he's saying you need to understand as early as you possibly can in the Christian life that if you have been called into fellowship with this one, this Savior, you have been called to share in what Paul calls the fellowship of his sufferings. You cannot be called near to Christ without being treated in some measure the way Christ was treated. Now, of course, it shouldn't be like that because Christ makes us better. Christ makes us better workers than we would be. Christ makes us better, quote, slaves than we would have been without Christ. When, when Paul sends Onesimus back to his master Philemon, he says, you know, when he left you, he was useless. Now he's going to be useful because he's Christ's. But of course, Christ shouldn't have been persecuted, should he? Went about doing good, healing the sick, teaching the people, feeding the hungry, loving the loveless, bringing repentance to some of the rascals that lived in his time, loving and caring and teaching about God, and for the first time in the traditions of the people, welcoming them into the presence of God and encouraging them to call God their own heavenly Father. But Peter says he was persecuted. 
And he's saying, if you belong to Jesus. Yes, you may have an easier time than some other Christians. Just as here he thinks, some of you Christian slaves are going to have good masters who respect you, honor you, promote you, and may even enable you to buy your freedom. Others of you are going to be harsh, but every one of us is going to experience to some degree or another, contrary to what ought to be, that the more like Jesus we become, the more we follow His example, the more we attract the kind of unwanted attention of those who are hostile to the gospel and hostile to the transformation that it has produced in us. So, what do we need to remember when that happens? Well, three things he mentions. The first is this, that the way Jesus suffered provides us with an example of how we should suffer. Notice what he says in verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit found in his mouth, but they hurled their insults at him, but he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What's the point that he's making here? He's saying, follow Jesus' example. And he uses a very particular word for example here in uh, verse 21, leaving you an example. Um, now, uh, you know, 10 years' time, they'll even be teaching children in school to write. You know, they'll go into primary one and there'll be a computer there. So, they'll probably not even bother to teach them how to write. But, you know, our generation taught to write. Um, some of you have never used a fountain pen, is that right? Some of you never used a ballpoint pen, but some of you never used a fountain pen. My generation, when we were taught to write in ink, there was a desk like this, there was a hole in the desk, there was a kind of clay pot in the desk, and you were given a wooden cylinder that had a nib on the end with a hole. And you were given these funny books, you remember the jotters? And uh, even, the, even the, the blackboards had funny lines so that the teacher could teach you to write. And if you weren't doing very well, the teacher would sit down beside you, just sit down beside you. I can't remember what her name was, Miss whatever her name was, wore perfume that would asphyxiate a six-year-old boy and almost did that, almost ended my life. And the deal was this, that when the letter moved up, it was a light stroke. Isn't that right? Is the memory going? I'm having a senior moment here. It was a light stroke up and then a heavy stroke down. But in order to teach you to do that, what Miss So-and-so did was she took a pencil and she wrote on the jotter, you know, let's say she wrote sheep, light up, thick down with a pencil, light up, thick down, light up, thick down, you know, and then, then you took your pen and you wrote on top of what she had written. You copied her handwriting. That's exactly the word that Peter uses here. 
And that's the way in, in which it was actually used in, in the first century. It was used of children learning to write by, by slowly following what the teacher, the master, had done until it became second nature for them. If you saw my handwriting, you would say it never became second nature for him. But there was a time when it became second nature. Now he's saying, that's the way we live. Jesus has, Jesus has written through his life perfect responses to suffering. Now, as you are writing, as we all are, your autobiography, go over the style of response that Jesus has demonstrated in the Gospels. And, and what will the result be? Well, you see the point. You see, this is the glorious, the glorious thing about not actually belonging to this world is that in this world, you're more and more growing towards what you long to be, which is at the end of the day, what? Becoming more like Jesus. As you write your autobiography on top of the pattern for autobiographical writing that he has given to you in the Gospels. So, what do we need to remember? Uh, we need to remember, first of all, we, we have an example. And, you know, this is a great thing. If you're, if, if, if you're like some of these slaves, if you're, if you're going through a really hard time, to be able to say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I want to follow your example and one of the reasons I want to follow your example is because I know you went through this first. I know you learned obedience through the things that you suffered. And I know that's the way I'm going to learn obedience too. So he is our example, but more than our example, the death he died which provides us with this example is also what provides us with the salvation that we needed. It's not just that when, he hurled, when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate, or when he suffered, he didn't make any threats, or even just that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he said, and this is a great thing to learn when you're young. I don't know who taught me this, but somebody must have taught me this when I was a teenager, simply when it happens. You turn to the Lord Jesus and you say, this is really all about you, not all about me, and you'll take care of it. That's what Jesus did with his father. But then he says, in that suffering, he did something we don't do in our suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness because by his wounds, you have been healed. You see, he's saying two things. He's saying, here is the great thing for you. In the midst of all this uh, wrong suffering you're going through, you're able to say, ah, yes, but I know something. I know all my sins have been forgiven. And I know too, because I've been united to Christ, there's a sense in which I've died to sin and been raised into 
newness of life. And so he empowers me day by day to live in this way that is counterintuitive to the natural man and contrary to what the world expects to see when it persecutes you. Because by his wounds you have been healed. It's beautiful, isn't it? We're not finally healed yet. That will only take place in the resurrection. But we have been healed. I mean, think about how some of these Christian slaves who who could have been so embittered, how easy it is to become embittered when you're badly treated for doing the right thing. It's one of our most basic instincts. But to know that you're in the healing process, and you're able to hand it all over to the Lord and say, Lord, you'll, you'll deal with this. I don't, I don't need to be bitter about this because you will deal with this. All wrongs will be righted when Aslan comes or whatever the words in uh, the line, the witch and the wardrobe are. Hand it over to you because you've healed me through the gospel. And then there's more than that. He says, it's not just that there is an example in Christ's past and a power in Christ's death. It is that there's an ongoing care in Christ's presence because you were like sheep going astray. It's directly out of Isaiah 53, isn't it? We like sheep had gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, but now we have returned to the shepherd, to the overseer, or the bishop of our souls, and we live in his presence, and we know he's our bishop. Now, if you're a kind of new compulsive uh, Presbyterian, you, you know you may shiver at that word, but that's the word. People say, do you have bishops in the Presbyterian church? We have one great bishop, and he looks after his sheep. And this is what comforts us and strengthens us and sets us free to live for his glory because we know he understands he's been through it himself, so unjustly treated and so enslaved. You know, you read the last 24 hours of his life and he was treated as a slave, wasn't he? Uh, he was wrongly charged. Uh, he was given no opportunity for defense. Everybody said he was innocent and everybody demanded that he be crucified. And then they stripped him. If you read the Gospels carefully, it's pretty clear that Jesus was stripped on two occasions. Once stripped and then reclothed. And then at Calvary stripped and not reclothed. He was treated like a disposable slave. And so you imagine, as was true of some slaves in the, in the first century who were treated in similar ways, think of them going, going through those shocking, horrific experiences and being able to say, you know, in all they are doing and the worst they do to me, all they are doing is returning me to the shepherd and bishop of my soul. And he's with me. He's never left me. 
And I know I can turn to him and I can say to him, Lord Jesus, you know exactly what I'm going through. I've often said to people, never say that to anybody. Never say that to anybody. Because you don't know exactly what they are going through. You may have gone through analogies and parallels, but you aren't them. You haven't been with them all their lives. You don't know them through and through. You can only see from a distance what they're going through. But you see, he's been nearer to us than hands and feet. He's been with us in it all. He's walked us through it. He's been through worse. And we are able to say to him, Lord, you understand what I'm going through and you will bring me home. And he does so, so gloriously and marvelously. So really, we're back to two absolute simplicities about the Christian life. Principle number one, Jesus is our example. Principle number two, he's only our example because he's first of all our Savior. And just in case uh, you have never quite grasped that, you can never reverse the order. It, It never works that way. You can't try and follow him as your example. I remember as a youngster trying to do this. If I follow him as my example, maybe then he'll become my savior. And I didn't realize that I'd turned the gospel on its head. No, it's only when he becomes your savior that you're going to be able to follow him as your example. And this is what uh, Peter is teaching these Christians. So, you see, the world says the only, the only way to handle this is revolution. And the gospel says, no, we can, we can handle this by subversion. Not only so, but that then becomes a little secret between Jesus and you. Here's my boss sees the quality of my work and does me down and thinks I'm intimidated, I've handed it all over to the Lord Jesus. Does she really think that I do this quality of work because she intimidates me? No, I do this quality of work because I live in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And does she intimidate me? then I hand that over to the one who is the judge of all the earth. And I see how poor and pathetic she is because she sees herself as so big by comparison with me and she doesn't see herself against the larger picture of the fact that every errant word she speaks, every attack she makes on me, she makes on the Lord Jesus. And one day it'll all be clear. The embarrassment, the shame, be unimaginable. Oh, how I pity her. 
So let me continue to live for the Lord Jesus and pray that something of the beauty of Jesus may be seen in my life that will humble her, that will arrest her, that will draw her to Christ. It's Stephen and Saul of Tarsus, isn't it, all over again. The dear man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, so Christ-like, and yet destroyed. But in the way in which he responded to that destruction, Saul of Tarsus was grabbed and conscious, became furious until he was humbled under the mighty hand of God and brought to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a word, perhaps, for any of us who are in difficult working situations. Yes, you can walk away, and probably there are times when you should walk away. We don't live in a slavery society. We live in a democracy. But it is still possible to glorify Jesus in the harshest of situations for one simple reason. He's Jesus, and he makes the gospel work. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for passages like this that address difficult and sensitive situations, situations in which the world itself can find no resolution. We think of we think of the sheer number of Christians today who may actually be slaves and almost without exception maltreated. We pray, Lord, that these words of Scripture may wonderfully help them. And we pray for ourselves, especially for a brother or sister who goes through difficulties in their place of work where they have sold their hours to an employer and are mistreated. We pray that the powerful reality of these words may wonderfully be seen in their lives and that you would encourage them and all of us through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.